This is the Schnauzer Logic Radio Company. The Big Idea Podcast presents The Billionaire's Guide to Effective Storytelling and Other Good Advice. A Brief Primer. Part 2 of 3. In this episode, we'll take everything we learned in Part 1 and use it to assemble a complete story employing all the tools at our disposal, ethos, logos, and pathos, and the trick. The entire guide is available as a PDF, ebook, and audiobook at linktree slash tbg2est. That's l i n k t r dot ee slash tbg2est. And you can reach me directly on LinkedIn, Robin Diane Goldstein, or by email, robingoldstein at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, the only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution, every little detail plays a part. Having just a vision's no solution, everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Sorry, Stephen. When I was a kid, a friend introduced me to The Complete Book of Pitfalls, A Victim's Guide to Repairs, Maintenance, and Repairing the Maintenance by Derek Williamson. It's long out of print, but my memory of this volume is that it was the funniest thing I'd ever read and full of advice that would serve me well into adulthood, including the profound observation that 90% of every job is preparing the surface. With respect to this guide, that description seems pretty accurate. I've told you my origin story and why I think I have some unique insights into storytelling. I've also shared what I learned at Apple in the shadow of one of the greatest storytellers in recent memory, and that Aristotle was bad at naming his books, but great at distilling the three tools of persuasion. And I've let you in on the trick, the secret of which you've sworn to protect until a hundred years after my death, or National Donut Day 2024, whichever comes first. Plus, there was some truly bad poetry and a joke about a duck. And now it's time to put all the pieces together, and I'm stuck. Because telling a story isn't a one-size-fits-all proposition, certainly not across different products or companies or even when talking about the same thing with different audiences. When it comes to telling your story, if you were to ask me what's the right approach and best mixture of ethos, pathos, and logos, I would dip into my lawyer's bag of tricks and pull out a great big heaping handful of, it depends. Or more accurately, as I said to my favorite exec at the beginning of this journey, before I answer, I'd like to know what you want to accomplish. So while I'd love to give you a simple plug and play formula, I don't think one exists. Certainly not one that takes advantage of everything I think is important to telling a story that will have the maximum impact on your intended audience. But what I can do is help you home in on why you want to tell your story and what you hope to accomplish, and that means identifying who you'll be communicating with. Pro tip, it's never everybody. And understanding how they think and what motivates them and what biases they may have and what it will take to get their heads nodding from your very first word until your last. We'll do that by imagining your story as perceived through the eyes and ears and experiences of your intended audience compliments of the trick. Then we'll fine-tune a combination of rhetorical appeals to expertise, 
Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. And logic, nothing up my sleeve. And emotion, presto! In order to craft a version of your story optimized for your specific audience. That was a reference to Rocky and Bullwinkle. Finally, we'll look at how to workshop the story you've created, practice, 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 and if necessary, continue to tweak it for the desired result. Lather, rinse, repeat, bit by bit, putting it together. Let's begin. Step one is to identify both your intended audience and what you want from them. In theory, this should be straightforward, but humans tend to conflate issues and goals that are only tangentially related into a big, messy, multivariate equation. Divorce lawyers know what I'm talking about. And it's not surprising. Life is complex, and most of us are juggling numerous and often competing interests, and that's especially true in business and doubly true in a startup environment. So when different goals appear to be related, because in the end they're all really important to the bottom line, it's easy to mix everything together. This is illustrated in a scene from The Big Lebowski where the dude notes, This is a very complicated case, Maud. You know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. Uh, a lot of strands to keep in my head, man. A lot of strands in the old duder's head. Luckily, uh, I'm adhering to a pretty strict uh, drug regimen to keep my mind, you know, limber. Fortunately, you can achieve the same degree of mental flexibility as the dude without the need for pharmaceutical enrichment by starting with the age-old question, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And with your answer, begin to narrow down both your audience and the problem you're asking that audience to help you solve. Here are a few simple examples. Problem. We're looking to raise capital. Audience. Potential investors. Problem. We're looking to build market share. Audience, potential customers. Problem, we're trying to convince regulators or government agencies to let us operate. Audience, regulators and politicians. Problem, we're trying to hire talent in a competitive environment. Audience, potential employees. And problem, we're trying to quell fears that competitors are eating our lunch. Audience actual employees. You get the idea. These are just five scenarios called from an infinite number of possibilities, and as you've already recognized, each of the above can be broken down further and with greater specificity. For example, angel investors don't tend to evaluate a company the same way as a VC. They both want a return on investment, but they measure success differently. And politicians eager to attract a futuristic robo-taxi service to their community as a benefit to their constituents will require a different approach from career regulators looking to keep a new, unproven, and potentially competing transportation service out of their town. Regardless, in each case, some combination of your company or company's products, uniqueness, value, and human appeal is in play. But the way you arrange those elements of your story, as well as the emphasis you place on each, will differ depending on your audience. So in step one, our goal is to identify as precisely as possible the intended audience and the problem we're asking them to help us solve. And a quick aside before we proceed. At this point, you may be thinking, what if I get this step wrong? What if I don't correctly define my problem or properly identify my audience? To which I say, Bunk them in balderdash. Yes, I was born at the turn of the century. Being wrong is an opportunity to test and learn and refine your thesis. That's why we rinse and repeat. 
Being wrong means you now have more knowledge than you did when you started. Author, composer, and world-class jazz musician Kenny Werner has a chapter in his book, Effortless Mastery, entitled, There Are No Wrong Notes. This is a great way to think about the creative process, crafting your story, and life in general. So don't worry about being wrong. Just focus on making sure you're moving forward and keep on playing. Step two is where we identify the most effective mixture of appeals to logic, expertise, and emotion for our intended audience. Once again, when asked what percentage should be applied to each element, I offer another sip from my bottomless cup of, it depends. Now, if you do a search for ethos, pathos, and logos plus Venn diagram, you'll see a lot of illustrations that look like this. And in the book, at this point, there's an illustration of three circles overlapping each other equally. One says ethos, one says logos, one says pathos, and in the very center is an arrow pointing to the word balance with an exclamation point. Now, the problem with this image, besides the fact that the word balance has a different font and unnecessary exclamation point, is that these three elements are almost never present in equal amounts. And I don't want you to come away from this section thinking that one-third, one-third, one-third is a desired outcome, or that the only way to achieve balance is by applying your appeals to ethos, pathos, and logos equally when crafting your pitch. The next section describes another illustration. This time it is of two children on a teeter-totter. Uh, there is a large girl on the right, there is a small boy on the left, and there are many references and arrows pointing up and down and labels to each of the elements of this particular illustration. As the figure below clearly shows, to achieve a state of balance, the mass m2 when multiplied by the distance r2 must equal, nah, I'm just messing with you. I have no idea what's really going on in this illustration. I've only included to show how two children of different heights and weights in questionable fashion sense, no judgment, can create a state of balance by shifting where they sit on either side of a teeter-totter. Uniformity doesn't mean equality, and balance can be achieved in many different ways. Once again, divorce lawyers will know what I'm talking about. So how do you come up with the right blend of ethos, pathos, and logos for your story and intended audience? Well, a good place to start is by recalling some of the characteristics generally associated with each element. In the book now is a small chart with three columns labeled ethos, logos, and pathos, and under each are elements of each. Under ethos, it says trustworthiness, credibility, expertise, authority, reputation, and history. Under logos, it says logic, evidence, obviousness, facts, statistics, and reason. And then under pathos, it says emotion, imagination, passion, desire, connection, and empathy. As with all my examples, this list is non-exhaustive, non-canonical, and probably even a bit wrong. But what it shows is that if your audience is likely to be attracted to a solution that comes from a recognized authority, segment leader, or someone with unmatched experience, an effective ELP, or ethos, logos, pathos mixture for your story, will likely be ethos-heavy. On the other hand, if the thing most likely to resonate with your audience is an appeal to their imagination, or perhaps something aspirational, or maybe even a solution that speaks to the challenges they may be facing in their personal lives, then your ELP mixture will likely be more effective if you place greater emphasis on the pathos elements of your story. In my experience, when clients are trying to raise capital, I found that most investors are susceptible to arguments that have a strong ethos component supported by a solid logos element. And if you think about it, this makes sense. Warren Buffett said that he invests in people, not businesses. 
and it's people who embody the traits of authority, credibility, and expertise. So making that element a more prominent component of your story, buttressed with a smaller appeal to statistics, logic, and reason, as well as emotion, desire, and imagination, will increase the probability that you'll be able to get and keep your listener's head nodding for the duration of your story. On the other hand, updates to products in the consumer space and improvements to existing enterprise solutions generally need to be able to overcome the friction commonly associated with change. This friction is frequently expressed in behaviors like not updating software or ignoring a blinking 12 o'clock or check engine light or through voiced objections like what I already have is working. Change isn't free in terms of time, money, and productivity. Being better isn't enough to disrupt the status quo. And who the hell are you and why should I listen to your story? I put these phrases in quotes because I've heard each of these things said verbatim by members of a target audience, even though the client I was working with was sure that their offering was a no-brainer. But not to worry. This is where understanding the value of emphasizing the elements of logos and pathos in your story and using the trick can make all the difference. Because if you're not at the discovery of fire level of innovation, you'll find that what often motivates people to nod their head is someone telling them a story about how they can help them solve a problem they already recognize as a problem. Read that last or listen to that last or have somebody else tell you that last part again, even though it's poorly constructed. And then once more, most people aren't interested in solving problems they don't know they have but they are interested in hearing solutions to the challenges and annoyances and indignities of their daily life. If you need yet another pop culture shorthand way of thinking about this, just remember the scene in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise shouts at Cuba Gooding Jr., help me help you, help me help you, help me help you. Or you can reflect on former President Bill Clinton who became infamous for saying, I feel your pain. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, just a couple of pages ago you wrote, and so in step one, our goal is to identify as precisely as possible our intended audience and the problem we're asking them to help us solve. And now you flip the script and you're saying we should be focused on telling a story that highlights how we can help solve the listener's problem. What the what? And to this I say, full marks for reading comprehension. And yes, both. As Walt Whitman wrote, Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And here's something an improv acting teacher told me many years ago. In every scene, you're the lead and everyone else on stage is playing a supporting role. The only challenge this presents is that's true for everyone else on stage too. Which I've come to understand means that my goals and motivations are mine and mine alone. But if I put myself into someone else's shoes, the same scene can look very different. For an interaction between two parties to be successful, each needs to understand and potentially negotiate the same scenario from the other's point of view. Notice, I'm not saying that you must fully embrace or even agree with your audience's perspective, but you do need to understand it. That's why listening is a highly underrated superpower, and unfortunately, the vast majority of people you'll meet will simply engage in some form of talking and waiting to talk. But we contain multitudes, and know the trick, and a duck joke. Yet another unplanned detour. 
Shortly after finishing the section above, I had coffee with some former students to talk about an elder care startup they're trying to get off the ground. As we talked through their potential pitch to investors and early adopters, they explained that there were multiple stakeholders involved in the deployment of their system, including the patient, one or more part-time home health care workers, family members, often located remotely, and various clinicians responsible for managing both acute and chronic conditions. A lot of strands to keep in the old duder's head. I asked how they were planning on making their pitch, given that payment would initially need to be out of pocket and not reimbursable by insurance, and they proceeded to describe a flow of value and utility that would require a room full of middle school English teachers to diagram. And as I reminded them of the importance of clearly identifying their audience, pro tip redux, it's still never everybody, so that they could develop a specific, relatable problem and ask, I recalled that same scene in Jerry Maguire and said, Remember, Tom Cruise didn't say to Cuba Gooding Jr., help me help someone else who will help you. In many fields, including but not exclusively healthcare, you may have both direct and indirect beneficiaries of your product or service. And a trap that many would-be billionaires fall into is imputing value from one to the other by telling their story to an indirect beneficiary to persuade them to help someone else, which, at some point in the future, will help them as well. But if people aren't interested in solving problems they don't think they have, they certainly aren't interested in solving problems someone else may or may not have. I haven't come up with an easy solution to this, but I know that pretending that it isn't an issue is the fastest way to dilute the impact of your story. One possibility is an ELP mixture that focuses on ethos, expert and authority, and pathos, connection and empathy, and that places less emphasis on logos, obviousness. This may be a good way to start until you have real-world examples of imputed value that turn into direct benefit for your actual audience. Then you can update your story to increase the weight of your Logos element, since you'll now have the kind of evidence that Logos supports. Yes, this all adds a layer of messiness to a structure and process I really want to simplify for you. And while I don't know precisely what the right thing to do is in these situations, I'm certain that it's wrong to ignore this reality completely. Someone very smart, I'm not saying an exec, but I'm not not saying an exec, once said to me, don't worry about it, the customer will figure it out. Breaking news. They didn't. And I suspect that if you go down that same route, not even Tom Cruise will be able to help you. We now return to our originally scheduled program, already in progress. Okay, that was a nice pit stop. Everyone got a chance to get out, stretch their legs, get some snacks. But where were we again? Oh yes, putting it together. So step one in crafting your story is to identify both your intended audience and what you're going to ask from them. Step two is to determine what kinds of appeals are most likely to be effective with this audience using a mixture of the rhetorical tools broadly characterized as appeals to expertise, ethos, logic, logos, and emotion, pathos, and by taking advantage of the additional insights you'll gain by imagining the world of your audience in the future using the trick. And step three is to craft your story. Now, depending on the form of your presentation and the medium you'll use to tell your story, you have a lot of options for this step, and experts have created tons of articles and books and videos and courses with guidance on the most effective approach to laying out your narrative for a specific kind of audience in a specific field or industry. Oof. A lot of this is how we've always done it, or this is what investors expect to see, or this has been proven successful. 
And that's great as a starting point. But remember that when I first sat down to think about the three boxes of the story I wanted my exec to tell the board of directors, I began with Once Upon a Time, moved on to Happily Ever After, and then described the hero's journey we were going to pursue. And as my screenwriting friend reminded me, this is not the classic setup conflict resolution construct of most fictional narratives, but instead an inverted form of setup resolution and conflict. And it isn't that one is right and one is wrong. In fact, years of making hundreds of keynote presentations taught me that some execs had personal preferences and were more amenable to persuasion when information was presented in order A, while others demanded order B. So we delineated the transition points of our deck, our story, to easily move the blocks around to maximize effectiveness with our intended audience. Semper Gumby, as a naval commander friend of mine used to say, always flexible. And why? Because the rules are tools. Here's what I mean. When I was in law school, I took a class in torts, negligence, accidents, stuff like that. And after reviewing a case, a student raised their hand and said that the previous case had an almost identical set of facts, but the outcome was entirely different. How are we to know what the right answer was? The professor looked at us all and said, the rules are tools. The rules are tools. The rules are tools. And as I wrote this, I wondered if he may have just come from a screening of Jerry Maguire. Then he said, remember, there is no big book of torts where you look up a fact pattern and get an answer. Every case must be decided on its own, and even minor changes to the smallest elements can have an impact on how a judge or jury will be persuaded by issues of law and equity the courtroom companions to ethos, logos, and pathos, ultimately affecting the outcome. My old professor's admonition is meant to remind you that there is never just one best way to do anything. If your goal is to be an effective storyteller, and that means ignoring something I've suggested, or even doing the exact opposite, then that's the right answer. We're well into the wrapping up phase now, and in the next section we'll go over the final element, practice, practice, practice also known as the lather-rinse-repeat portion of the competition. But before we do, I want to quickly circle back to the trick to reinforce an idea I introduced earlier, but which still seems to elicit the old poodle-show-in-a-car-trick head tilt when I talk about it with colleagues. And I'm hoping that given that you've stuck with me this far, a quick review may bolster an extremely powerful but frequently overlooked tool that can generate unique and valuable insights. Plus... What's an extra 400 words among fellow billionaires? One of the remarkable things about Apple's long run of success when Steve Jobs returned to the company was that some of the products that were designed by the engineers and product teams to be used one way were used in other unintended or anticipated ways by the customers. This was especially true when whole new categories of products were introduced. And while there are many examples of this, the one I come back to most often in discussions with clients is the introduction of the original iPhone. When first launched, the iPhone was promoted as a combination of three products. A revolutionary mobile phone, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, and a breakthrough internet communications device, email, web browsing, maps. Nothing about apps or the ubiquitous app store, and that wasn't an oversight. From the company's point of view, the original iPhone wasn't intended to be a platform. And I know this for a fact, since I had a conversation with a marketing VP one day and mentioned that customers were jailbreaking the device, interacting with it in an unauthorized way, to load games that would run directly on their phone. 
He stopped me mid-sentence to inform me with an intensity and volume and smell of onions that I still remember that the iPhone was not a f***ing platform. But lots of customers thought it was, and they created sophisticated software tools and large libraries of useful and entertaining third-party applications. That launched an ongoing game of cat and mouse to prevent them from using the iPhone that way, but... Eventually, Apple came around to understand what many artists and musicians and writers have also come to understand. As Marcel Duchamp, a pioneering figure in the Dada art movement, said, All in all, the creative act is not performed by the artist alone. The spectator brings the work in contact with the external world by deciphering and interpreting its inner qualifications and thus adds his contribution to the creative act. At the core of the trick is recognizing and embracing this contribution as a way of seeing the world from another point of view. In this case, the point of view of your audience in the future. You can then use this deeper understanding to craft a narrative and solution that may persuade your intended audience to develop an interest in solving a problem they didn't know they had. Multitudes indeed. So to quickly recap, because I let my ADD take the wheel for the past few pages, and throw in a lot of shiny things to amuse my inner crow. Here, in no uncertain terms, are the three steps I recommend you follow as you construct your story. Step one, identify who you will tell your story to and what you want from them. Step two, identify all you know about this audience and what's likely to motivate them to act. Do this by understanding the world through their eyes and focusing on the problems you can help them solve. Then, use the trick to gain additional insights at a point in the future where your story has become their story, so you can craft a richer narrative that not only addresses the what and how of your offering today and its impact on their current concerns, but also speaks to the kinds of new experiences you can unlock for them in the future. Do all of this in the context of Aristotle's three tools of persuasion, ethos, expertise, logos, logic, and pathos, emotion and outline an appeal that leverages the advantages of each, adjusting your mixture in accordance with what you believe will be most likely to match your audience's inherent motivation. Step three, craft a complete version of your story following the classic structure of setup conflict resolution, or alternatively, choose a form that may be more customary or familiar in your industry or preferred by your audience or that your gut simply tells you is the right way to go. And remember that at the end of the day, there are no wrong notes. Here endeth the lesson. Thanks for listening to part two of the Billionaire's Guide to Effective Storytelling and other good advice. A brief primer presented by the Big Idea Podcast. In part three, we'll explore how to workshop your story and then optimize its telling for your intended audience. We'll also share some of that advertised other good advice and provide some context for the many references contained within the guide. The entire guide is available as a PDF, ebook, and audiobook at linktree slash tbg2est. That's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash tbg2est. And you can reach me directly on LinkedIn, Robin Diane Goldstein, or by email, robingoldstein at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.
This is the Schnauzer Logic Radio Company.